Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today we welcome Travis Cox, a professor in the eco-psychology department. Welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, would you like to introduce yourself a bit further? Yeah. It's funny. One of my former colleagues, uh, he used to love to introduce me, but he's in England now, and so mm. now I have to introduce myself. He always <laughs> used to say, Travis got a BA in philosophy, an MA in philosophy and religion, with an emphasis in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness and then a PhD in sustainable agriculture. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Little combo. It's weird. I mean, like, yeah, every time he would do it, I'd be like, that's weird, but it is also true, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And now I'm in a, a master's degree in eco-psychology here at Naropa that's low residency. Mm. So it's like you come for intensives and then do coursework online. Great. Yeah. And uh, today we're going to be talking about sustainability is eco-psychology. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah. And so in order to do it, I found the best way is to just tell my story. And mm-hmm. like, so to have you follow me through my thinking and experience, and then I'm going to circle back around yeah. again. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So, and I'll start with, it's kind of my graduate education and then teaching career is the thing that took me to this understanding mm-hmm. about eco-psychology is sustainability. So it started 2000, and I, and I don't want to turn any listeners off right at the beginning, but I did work for the Ralph Nader campaign. And maybe enough time has passed that mm. like people won't attack me for that. But right afterwards, I would often get <laughs> yeah. chastised. And so it feels like a lot like this time where there was like some existential dread for me about like, where are we in the mm-hmm. world? And like, what am I supposed to do? And I found a master's degree, like I said, in philosophy, cosmology and consciousness. I've got some props right here. Um, And I saved the advertising because it was so good. Oh, nice. I was just a sucker for like how it started. It says, Mm. another way forward is possible. Transformation of the entire human project is possible. And then the PCC program is dedicated to this crucial evolutionary task. And like it totally had me at that, right? Yeah. And so I go out to San Francisco and like, I'll just give you a couple examples of, of what I learned. Like, one was just the concept of worldviews. Like, I didn't have that beforehand, mm-hmm. even as a philosophy major. And so we read a book called The Passion of the Western Mind uh, by one of my professors, Richard Tarnas, who really gets to the power of ideas and, and the way that your ideas about something then affect the world that you build and live in and your behavior. And then there was specific people like Thomas Berry, uh, was somebody that we learned he calls himself uh, a geologian. So it's like huh. a, a theologian of the earth, which is... I uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, like back then I was, not that I'm not now, but I'll talk later about how philosophy became practical for me. But back then I was like really interested in pragmatic action. And so the thing that attracted me to Thomas Berry was, you know, he had identified like, here's the here's the things that we need to change, like... 
politics, religion, economics, and education, right? Mm-hmm. And here's how we're going to change them. We're going we're gonna to bring in the worldviews of like indigenous people's wisdom, traditions, women, and then science as its own wisdom yeah. tradition. And so I really resonated with that. There's another guy, Gregory Bateson, who was like a cyberneticist, uh, ecologist, and anthropologist. Like this, mm-hmm. you know, his career spanned a lot of disciplines. And he's somebody who's talking about like that civilizations should only be using limited resources to transition into a sustainable culture, right? So we use mm-hmm. fossil fuels to build a culture that then runs on solar energy or something like that. Yeah. Like really like practical uh, ideas. But then I had the experience of learning about the sixth mass extinction. Mm-hmm. So there's been five previous mass extinctions, usually caused by asteroids or, you know, mm-hmm. climax, uh, like severe changes like that. Well, we're currently in the sixth one and it's like human beings are causing it. And so like, it just hit me. Like I had this like real experience of like, I have to do something about this. Like my life needs to be like a part of this. And so then it was like, I I want to study sustainability. Like this is the practical thing that I'm going to move into in order to make a difference on this front. And through a series of like synchronicities, uh, like I did research into biomimicry. They talked about perennial agriculture. Mm. I stop at the Land Institute in Kansas on my this road trip I was doing where they do perennial agriculture. One of my former professors is like, I know the guy who runs that place. We used to be on a board together. So I look up the mm. board. Nice. I find out about Iowa State who has a degree in sustainable agriculture. And I was like, I'm going to try to do that. Nice. And so it's the only PhD in sustainable agriculture in the country Hmm. like there's there's a lot that might be like agroecology or food systems but Mm -hmm. this one is like purposefully sustainable agriculture yeah it's kind of in your face so i start there and i'm the only humanity student in the 10-year history of the whole department like there's natural scientists and social scientists who are working on their stuff so when i was at iowa state i started to think are organic practices enough like we can do things for the soil, we can have diverse crop rotations, we can plant um, plants at the margins that bring in beneficial insects. But if we still have this productionist mindset, if we mm-hmm. still have like we're the owners of the earth who have dominion over it, are yeah. we really going to have a sustainable relationship? And so I went back to um, the people who've come up with these different alternative agricultures so like Rudolf Steiner is somebody who came up with biodynamic agriculture. Uh, Sir Albert Howard is credited with being like the father of organic agriculture. There's a guy, Liberty Hyde Bailey, who was a dean of a ag college at the turn of the century. And I went to look into their writing and thinking, and they all recognized that, no, a consciousness there's a, there's a sustainable agriculture consciousness that goes along with mm-hmm. sustainable agriculture yeah. practices. And so I started to get into like, wow, okay. You know, I was a little predisposed with my, with my master's program to be thinking along those lines. But I didn't, I didn't make Liberty Hyde Bailey talk about dandelions as like you needing to be loved, right? You know, like, yeah. like that it existed already. <laughs> and so, um, and I just was predisposed to kind of see it and draw it out. And so, again, kind of uh, synchronistically, I, I knew about permaculture when I was out in the Bay Area uh, doing my master's. 
you know, 2001 to 2005, but I never wanted to take a class there because I knew that I was going to come back to the Midwest Mm -hmm. and permaculture is so context dependent that even though, you know, I would, I would learn the principles, it would be better to like experience it where Mm -hmm. I was going to be. And so I found a permaculture class in Iowa. I took it to do research for this PhD that I was doing to try to see like, oh, Permaculture is another example of sustainable agriculture. Does it have these like deeper principles mm-hmm. about, you know, the mindset that you have? And through that, I actually got my first teaching job, right? Like, nice. and it was at one of the first four-year degrees, undergraduate degrees in sustainability in the country at uh, Maharishi University of Management. Mm. So then I started to get to teach about sustainability and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And again, it was... It, I might be predisposed to looking for it, but it still has to be there in the literature in order for me to be able to teach it. Yeah. And it is. I mean, like David Orr, who is the progenitor of the idea of ecological literacy, like he says, genuine sustainability, in other words, will come not from superficial changes, but from a deeper process akin to humankind growing into a fuller stature. Right. Like that's that's deep Mm -hmm. (laughs) or like um, Paul Hawken, who wrote this book, Blessed Unrest. So he had his previous book was Natural Capitalism, and it was a really big revolutionary kind of book, toured all over the world. Um, At the end of his talks, people would come up and give him their business cards all Mm -hmm. over the world saying like these are the this is the thing that I'm doing in my community. When he got home, he literally had like shoe boxes full of these business cards. And then he started to, the book Blessed Unrest is about him realizing that it's like, oh my gosh, this is a movement, Mm -hmm. but it's not a movement like we've had in the past. It's like a leaderless movement to the point where one of the chapters is about the analogy of the sustainability movement being like the earth's immune system because Mm -hmm. the the immune system doesn't have like a brain or a heart Mm-hmm. Or lungs, there's no like controller. Yeah, yeah, and so so there's all these responses all over the world that are like context dependent that are mm-hmm. coming up. Well, he says we can't save our planet unless humankind undergoes a widespread spiritual awakening, right? Like, and mm-hmm. so I'm yeah. not I'm not putting words in people's mouths. Like this is where mm-hmm. it's coming from. And so as I look for it, especially to to teach in this environment where it's like, yeah, we need to learn sustainability, but we need to learn sustainability alongside consciousness yeah i found it all over the place like there was a a gentleman named christopher Uhl who teaches at penn state he's a biologist and he has uh, i was looking for like an introduction to sustainability textbook and you know he has a, a book it's in three parts it's great like the first one is like here's how the earth works the second part is like here's how we've messed up the way that the earth works and then the third part is like here's how we're going to fix it and he has things like like a, a model of power dynamics. He has power over and power with, which most people who do power dynamics recognize. But then he also has power within. And like, that was novel for me to see yeah. that in the sustainability literature. He also, I mean, he has a section on the role that mindfulness meditation can play right in the sustainability movement. And this is a biologist at Penn State. Like it's not, yeah. you know, and or <laughs> James Gustaf. Speth is the co-founder of the um, National Resource Defense Council. He was Jimmy Carter's chairman for the Council on Environmental Quality. He was a dean of the Forestry Environmental Studies at Yale. In his book called The Bridge at the End of the World, he has a chapter called 
a new consciousness. And he says, like many of our deepest thinkers and many of those familiar with the scale of the challenges we face have concluded that the transitions required can only be achieved in the context of what I will call a rise of a new consciousness. For some, it's a spiritual awakening. For others, it's a more intellectual process of coming to see the world anew. Yeah. And, and then the last one I'll do, because I have, I, I mean, like, I, you know, <laughs> I spent so much of my time, like, trying to find these mainstream voices that are talking yeah. about countercultural change, right? Mm-hmm. And I lied. Maybe I might do two more. Uh, <laughs> there is a gentleman named John Ehrenfeld. He's the progenitor of the idea of industrial ecology. Mm-hmm. So it would be like, let's say you were going to set up an industrial park in your city, and you're going to invite you know, different factories to come in. How about you situate it so that the seven that are there, the food f- for one is the waste of another so that like it works yeah. as like a little ecosystem. He taught at MIT in his first book, Sustainability by Design. He's using Heidegger, a philosopher's conception of being to like root sustainability in being like with a capital B. Mm-hmm. And again, here's somebody who's like working on factories who's talking about being right Mm. um and then in his next book which i would recommend to everyone is called flourishing and it was great um and he says in that i challenge you to re-examine what it means to be human i want to challenge you to reconsider our place within the whole of nature we need to shift from a view of ourselves first from one of having to one of being and second from one of needing to one of caring so like and then the last two, Stephen Keller, who teaches social ecology at Yale and worked with E.O. Wilson on the concept of biophilia, he said the mitigation of this environmental crisis may necessitate nothing less than a fundamental shift in human consciousness. And then the last one I'll do is Danella Meadows, who's, a, who's famous as a systems thinker, and she has this how to leverage change in systems And like at the very top, you have things like buffers, stocks, and flows. And so what that means is like like a buffer would be how big your flood wall is, right? Like a stock would be um, how much water, rainwater is coming into that. And then the flow would be how much are you letting out, right? And so it's a really tangible Mm. physical thing that helps you change a system. So that's like the 11th place to change systems it changes a little bit but not very much Mm -hmm. the number one place is the power to transcend paradigms is what she says Mm. right and so like so i'm not making this up (laughs) and so like in in getting into this i've just realized that like oh what what that means is that you're doing environmental humanities or uh what some of my colleagues like uh lonnie who used to introduce me that way or john eichard who was this retired agricultural economist who, speaking of conversion experiences, he, in the 80s, was like very mainstream and was promoting, you know, get big or get out policies in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And then, and there was a farm crisis yeah. and there were farmers who were honestly committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And he had this realization that he's like, oh my gosh, like my job and what I tell people to do is directly related to like people committing suicide. And he just had this change mm-hmm. to go from like conventional agriculture into sustainable agriculture. Yeah. And then as we like went through like well what is what does sustainability actually mean? We kept going to consciousness, to like paradigms, to yeah. like worldview shifts. And so and here's here comes another synchronicity. So I had 
two students that I was working on their senior projects with at MUM. And one of them used Bill Plotkin's work, who uh, I first got turned on to it at CIIS uh, in my master's program through what he was calling soulcraft, which is like nature-based practices in order for you to get in touch uh, with your true self. And then as a result of him doing that as a career, uh, he came up with a human development model that I think is really cool. And his premise is that we've created a culture that keeps us pathologically adolescent Mm -hmm. so that like a lot of adults and elders in this culture don't know how to be authentic adults and elders. And so she took that development model and said, okay, well, if we take that as a species or at least a Western culture, then like sustainability is us growing up is recognizing that we're not the center of the world. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And so it was, that was a really interesting paper that started me waking up to the, the, what does the discipline actually look like that takes this seriously, that takes Mm -hmm. this worldview stuff related to the environmental crisis seriously? And then I had another student who, uh, Crystal, who wrote a paper about eco-psychology like explicitly. Mm -hmm. And her paper was essentially, look, you have this industrial society, and then that gives you Freud and psychology. And now we're trying to move into a sustainable society. We need, mm-hmm. a, we need a psychology that works with that. Yeah. And that's eco-psychology. Yeah. So then this job opens up and I get to like apply mm-hmm. for it. And, it and, I, and I applied for it at the exact same time that I ordered this book. So it's Theodore Rozak, Where the Wasteland Ends. Like she, mm. she was quoting Rozak so much in her paper. And I, I got on to look and see what the big deal was all about. And I'll just read this real quick. It's from the back cover of that book. Uh, Rozak says, and this one actually is, was written in 1972, 73. Mm. Um, That's when Nerova was started. Hey, serendipitous. Um, And so he wrote, we can now recognize that the fate of the soul is the fate of the social order. That if the spirit within us withers, so too will all the world we built around us. Literally so. What, after all, is the ecological crisis that now captures so much belated attention, but the inevitable extroversion of a blighted psyche, like inside, like outside. In the eleventh hour, the very physical environment suddenly looms up before us as the outward mirror of our inner condition. For many, the first discernible symptoms of an advanced disease within. And so I was like, whoa, like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. that's, where, that's where I'm going. Mm. And so then, you know, now I'm here. And I get to, you know, assign students um, work from John Davis, who started this program as actually a transpersonal psych program over 10 years ago. Uh, and it's morphed into from a transpersonal psych program into transpersonal psych with an emphasis in eco-psychology into transpersonal wow. eco-psychology, <laughs> now into just eco-psychology, <laughs> right? And he says, you know, that eco-psychology is distinguished by fundamental interconnection between humans and their environment. And that, like we have concepts that go along with this, like the ecological self, the ecological unconscious. Mm-hmm. And then he also says that eco-psychology is about a fundamental worldview change. Mm-hmm. And so... Like we're, that's exactly what I've been studying and talking about. And then, but I still like in not having been 
trained explicitly in eco psychology, like I still kind of mm-hmm. second guess myself. Like even yeah. though I know that like this is exactly what I've been doing and exactly what I've been looking for. And so it wasn't until a student wrote a paper on agriculture for me last year, like her master's paper was on mm-hmm. it, that I recognized that I've been doing this for 10 years now. Yeah. And so I'm just going to read an excerpt from her paper. Oh, please. And then, and then I'll be, I'm going to circle back and be done. Cool. So she wrote, Theodore Rozak, considered the father of eco-psychology, defines the field and practice this way. It is a field whose goal is to bridge our culture's long-standing historical gulf between the psychological and the ecological, to see the needs of the planet and the person as a continuum. And she says, transpersonal eco-psychology is the evolving exploration, expression, and embodied practice of the interdependence of humans in the more-than-human world, which mm. tend towards the health, balance, and optimal well-being of all. And she says, years before Rozak began publishing work in eco-psychology, Aldo Leopold wrote about the complexities of interdependent relationships between humans and land in his book, Sand County Almanac. In the book, he writes, a quote, a land ethic changes the role of homo sapiens from conqueror of the land community to plain members and citizens of it. It implies respect for his fellow members and also respect for the community as such. And then she says, Leopold argues for a change in our eternal landscapes is something that might change our relationships with the land. This change includes extending social ethics to the land and an examination of our, quote, loyalties, affections, and convictions. And so, like, Mm. I had to read Aldo Leopold five times in the first three semesters that I was at Iowa State. And so, like, to recognize that, like, here's these two things, and they're Mm. exactly the same. Like, it made me feel so much better. And so, to wrap up, Mm. what I've come to know in studying and teaching eco-psychology more as an explicit dif- discipline is I've, I've recognized like three things that are really important to it. One is story, which is why I just told you the story of <laughs> me over the last 15 years that goes all the way back to the beginning of what I just talked about. So when I learned Thomas Berry, I'm um, in my master's program. Thomas believes that we are human beings are a storied being and that we need story in order to live. And right now we're in between stories. And that's yeah. why it's so hard for us. Yeah. And, then, and then I come here and I, and I learn council practice at the Ojai Foundation, which is just sitting in a circle and mm. telling stories. And I genuinely think that it can change the world, right? And so story is important. Conversion is important, right? Like so much actual empirical research in eco-psychology is about how people can go into nature and break out of the limiting ideas that they have for himself or get yeah. for themselves and get connected back to this larger. And then the last one is with synchronicity. Like synchronicity has led me all the way until being in this room with you. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so I've always followed it, but then eco-psychologist Leslie Gray said, I'd say that synchronicity is a consistent theme in shamanism Synchronous experience is considered a sign of health and the lack of synchronicity a sign of deterioration. Mm. And so, like, even to go all the way back to, and this is it, the sixth extinction, which was my conversion experience. Yeah. We started the student group to try to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And we had enough students over the years who were involved in the film industry that they actually made a movie about it called uh, Call of the Wild, Mm. uh, narrated by Peter Coyote. I think it's on Vimeo. You can find it. Mm. And what's crazy is Alan 
Canner and Mary Gomes are like featured heavily in that movie. And they are the authors of like the eco psychology book. So like right. so many things for me have just come full circle yeah. Yeah, yeah, into yeah. like recognizing that sustainability is eco psychology. Wow. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> full circle. Yeah. Yeah. While listening to you, I was realizing how your vast and diverse backgrounds inform this interdisciplinary way of thought and developing your consciousness to come to a point to realize that, you know, we all need to work with our consciousness and realizing that we have a spirit, the earth has a spirit, and it seems as though we're trying to change our spirit to hear the spirit that has always been inherent with the earth. Yeah. And it, it's very interesting. It almost seems backwards a little bit. Right. Like, like we should have started with spirit other than working with the outside and then kind of going to the inside. But I'm, I'm really finding it interesting to hear how you were taking all this information and all these things that you were interested in and then realizing the bigger synchronicity, the mosaic that came from the viewpoint after collecting all that and yeah. that was very interesting so thank yeah. you for sharing all that yeah 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 that's great yeah it is i mean one of the ways that it makes sense to me because like w the way that you said we're almost doing it backwards mm -hmm. right i have an evolution of consciousness perspective right so like for whatever reason let's say two hundred thousand years ago we started burying our dead right mm -hmm. 40 to 60,000 years ago, we started painting inside cave walls, right? And then, like, this thing has happened where we've became, like, a symbolic chimpanzee, right? Mm -hmm. And have, like, taken over. And so with this conscious self-awareness, we've, we've gone further and further away mm. from being embedded in that to yeah. kind of know who we are. And then, yeah. like, I see sustainability as, like, coming back into that like recognizing oh yeah like we have yeah. this and it makes us special yeah but it doesn't make us different than mm -hmm. like the the world and so then starting to see the spirit the same spirit out there like that's yeah. how that's how the process makes sense yeah yeah cool all right so i have a question for okay. you it's kind of a fun one i guess all right if you were to define eco psychology in your own words how how would you explain that how yeah. would you define that yeah <laughs> that's funny Oh man, that's hard because <laughs> it's always like in terms of like my audience, like mm -hmm. if, if it's somebody like a board of trustee okay. asks me, like then I have one definition, but if I defined it for myself. Yeah. So if you were defined, if you were explaining it to yourself with your diverse background of yeah. knowledge, like how, how would you understand it? How would that click in your mind to understand what eco psychology is? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be, it's like, it makes me think of the definition of like feminism as like the radical idea that women are equal to men, right? It's like eco-psychology is the radical idea that like we are the earth mm. because we came from the earth yeah. and that we should have a relationship, a positive relationship with the earth, right? It's like that yeah. simple. Yeah. yeah. And then like, I mean, the that's the eco part. The psychology part would be like, okay, so what worldviews do we have? What stories can we inhabit that then uh, engender having this like positive, nourishing relationship with the natural world? That's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I like it. <laughs> Simple. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. 
that was uh, Travis Cox, a professor in the eco-psychology department. And thanks for speaking with us. Yep. Take care. Yeah. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.